What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 131 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with David Saia. He is a professor of business in Da Nang, Vietnam. He also is co-owner in a restaurant in Phong Nha called The Underground. But I brought him on the show today to talk about his passion project, something he's been working on for the last 10 years. David has a passion for trying to do something about the plastic pollution problem throughout the world. And he's come up with a really interesting idea. His NGO is reuseeverythinginstitute.inc. So this episode is not him just sharing his life story, but it's also to inspire those who might be interested in helping, to lend a helping hand. If there's any engineers out there who are also passionate about trying to clean up the world's plastic, or if there's anybody out there who's a wizard at crowdfunding, he could definitely use your help. So please take the time to listen to the episode. And if you feel yourself really connecting with his story um, and his project's idea, then be sure to shoot him an email and let him know you're interesting in helping because it's really cool what he's come up with. He spent a lot of time developing this idea and, and try to take this huge problem with plastic around the world and turn it into something a little bit more positive that can benefit all these communities throughout the world that are basically drowning in it. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone at the subscribe button. If you like this episode, rating it and commenting on it really helps me in the ratings on iTunes or Spotify. I am on Spotify now, so you can also listen to Misfits and Rejects on Spotify. And I hope you like this episode with David Saia. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by David Saia. Gentleman I met recently here in Phong Nha. He is the owner of uh, Phong Nha Underground, which is a very nice restaurant here in Phong Nha, rated number one, as he just told me pre-show, which is really cool. Um, but more than that, he's got some really interesting, um, he's got a very interesting NGO. That's just really why I brought him on to talk more about that, but we'll learn more about him in a second. So his NGO is uh, Reuse Everything, Inc. Is that Reuse good? Everything Institute, Incorporated. Reuse Everything Institute, Incorporated. R-E-I-I. All right, right, right on. And you oh. can check us out on www.reuseeverything.org. Perfect, man. Well, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's really great to be here, Chapin. Yeah, excited to talk to you, man, because you've been here in Vietnam, what, four years, you said? Yep, just about. And uh, you have been a professor for 30 years teaching business. Pretty much, yeah. Um, been an official professor for uh, just short of 18 years. Um, and... Uh, and then teaching as a teaching assistant and as an adjunct professor before that. And then did your skills bring you here by contract or did you come just for an adventure and then found yourself teaching again? Well, actually, the NGO brought me here. Um, previously, we started the NGO in 2012. Um, we got uh, a 501c3 status in the U.S. Um, as a nonprofit um, and tried to start raising money. And I was working with students at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Um, we were taking them, or they were helping us with the design of machines for reusing plastic. Um, and then we raised money to go to Ecuador um, and put up uh, plastic thatch roofs there. Um, but I found out that trying to raise money for, I guess, essentially a tech startup, um, and a nonprofit at the same time seemed to be mutually exclusive. Um, so I kept getting people telling me, oh, you need to do this for profit. Um, that wasn't a model that I wanted. Um, and then I had several foundations interested in saying, oh, this is really great. Come back to us in a couple of years after you've proven you can, you know, hang on. And, um, and then we'll consider funding you. It's like, well, you know, that's the reason I need funding is, you know, so it was costing a huge amount of money to prototype machines in the U.S. And Manan, uh, my partner, is, um, is Viet Q, which means she was 
born in Vietnam, raised in the U.S. Now we're back here. But she suggested that we try coming here. And um, I found out that I can make machines for two to $4,000 here, um, which was a huge advantage. So we tried it. And uh, after a few months, um, managed to get a gig teaching at Yuitang uh, University in Da Nang. And they also offered assistance in engineering, and off we went. That's great, man. Yeah, let's jump right into it, because this is super interesting to me, because um, reuse everything, and you make plastic thatch roofs, and right. you have other concepts I know that you're trying to develop as well. And you did a really interesting, a great job talking to me about it the other day. Can you talk to the audience about what that means and, and what you're doing and why it's significant and how it's benefiting everybody? Yeah, sure. Um, so probably at this point, most people who are listening to the media, reading anything, are aware that we're basically swimming in plastic these days. Um, just about literally. Our, our oceans are just littered with plastic to such an extent that just about every fish we eat, every piece of seafood we eat has microparticles of plastic in it. Um, that's not good for you. <laughs> um, plastic is pretty amazing stuff, um, but it also is not a natural resource, um, as in, in the, in the, in the form that it's, that it's in, right? So it comes from oil, which is a natural resource, but then it's converted chemically into this amazing long chain hydrocarbon. Um, and it's got great flexibility, it's got great strength, it's got great durability. Those are all wonderful qualities in the material. And then we use it for five minutes, half an hour, whatever, and then we toss it away. And then it's going to sit in our environment for 200 years, 2,000 years, depending on how, how much uh, UV rays it gets and, and, and other, other erosion activities. So... The question is, what can we do? Um, recycling, which is what most of us try to do, is in some ways a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, yes, you can recycle plastic, but often it's downcycling, where you get a cheaper, uh, less usable quality of plastic from, from where you started. So it's downcycling. Um, it's also expensive. So you have to centralize it. You've got really expensive machines that you have to use to wash this plastic, to shred it, to melt it down and re-extrude it. Okay. Um, so it's perhaps part of a solution. But globally, we're only we're, we're recycling less than 30%. And now the major places that, that we're actually converting that plastic are not accepting the plastic any, long, any longer, notably China. Like what? Or like plastic, we ship them? Yeah, we were shipping almost everywhere was shipping to, to China and to other places in Southeast Asia. Now a lot of it's coming to Vietnam. Um, and they were then converting it. But as soon as the price of oil gets down below a certain level, your recycled plastic beads that, that, you know, you can then make into other things become non-competitive with virgin plastic. Now what do you do, right? So the economics don't really work very well. All right, so there's background. So what I'm trying to do is take the plastic as it is and take ribbons of plastic off of the bottles themselves um, and then combine them into continuous ribbons, straighten them, make them uniform, and then make commercial uh, construction materials that will have the kind of demand that can absorb the... Um, uh, the supply that's out there. The other thing about the economics that don't work is this whole idea of centralization. It's, you know, uh, it's a way that part of the Industrial Revolution really took off, was to centralize all these resources into big uh, productive uh, um, factories, um, make things that people use, and then ship them out everywhere. And that worked very well. Um, but it also helped to shape a sort of economic system that also favored the people who controlled all the assets. Um, and so you had workers who would work in those factories and the owners of the assets. And we start along this, this, this line from the 
second industrial revolution on where, you know, the poor get poorer and the rich get ultra rich. Um, and we're at an end of, or, or I hope an end of a cycle, um, where we're seeing outrageous levels of disparity. Um, so that's another issue that needs to be addressed. Um, it is possible now to enter a new, a new phase of industrial revolution where we have distributed manufacturing, where we make simple machines that are efficient, that are well-designed that you can, and are cheap, and you distribute those into communities and let people handle their resources within those communities, make their own small businesses, and then sell those products within their communities. So you reduce the amount of energy that is needed to centralize those resources and redistribute them. That's a big change, um, but I think it's possible. And I'd like to start with waste plastic because the beverage companies spend a huge amount of money distributing their product as widely as possible. And then they go, okay, we're done, and leave all the plastic there. So they have all the benefits of packaging their materials, uh, their products, and selling them, but then they take no responsibility for the end product. Well, again, that's another problem with the current system of business that, that we, we operate with. Um, there's no sense of responsibility to the community any further than, okay, you know, we sold you a product, the product is of a certain quality, we're not poisoning you, all right, we're done. Um, the long term, on the other hand, they are poisoning you. Um, they're poisoning you with plastic. Um, they're poisoning you with packaging. Um, and they're not providing any kind of resources to do something about that. In fact, as soon as you really bring it up, they clam up and run the other way because they don't want to hear it. It's a major threat to their business model. Um, so lots of people say, okay, now we have to produce a plastic that biodegrades itself and all of that. And that's great. Um, but most of those are plant-based. And we're facing a human population that needs more plants to eat, not for plastic. We've got a natural resource that we can turn into plastic. So the question is, how do we use that resource best? So the way I'm looking at it is, yes, we use it for packaging. And then we reclaim that packaging and we make it into another product where people within communities who right now aren't making much money at all are spending, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours collecting trash and making almost nothing. Instead, give them machines. Let them make products from this plastic and get the benefits from it. Now you've set up the, set up the economic incentives for them to collect as much plastic as possible because they're benefiting. And that benefit is happening at the, at the community level and spreading out among people who, who would never get a chance to operate their own businesses. And that, to me, is the essence of a true market capitalism, where you've got thousands and thousands of small businesses that are working on the community level, creating wealth at the community level, creating better living standards at the community level, um, and better living conditions. Um, that's, that's really the promise of what a true market capitalism should be, not the monopolistic type of, of capitalism that we see today, um, where everything gets consolidated. And Anyway. So when you started talking about what you do with the plastics right now, as, as, we, as you're working with them now, you take, is it this machine that you just spoke of? And so it's a series of machines. So you have multiple machines doing multiple different things. Right. But as, as it stands right now, the plastics that you're collecting in these communities are taking and you're making them into long strips and then you're making thatched roofs out of them, correct? Or a product right. that is a well, thatched roof. Right. It is. And we're still at the point of prototyping, so it's not launched in any communities yet. Okay. Um, we have put up roofs in Ecuador um, with the students from Carnegie Mellon University. Um, and those roofs have been operating now for over six years. Um, so it's, it's basically thatch. I mean, thatch is a technology that's been around for thousands of years. It works really well. Um, our thatch is unique because it replaces a natural thatch, which degrades over, you know, a year to a year and a half. 
ours will last 12 to 15, so it's 10 years longer, or 10 times longer that it will last. It also, in a single-story building, you can daylight the, the building, right? So the thatch is made from plastic, and it's translucent, and you can let the light from the outside in create shade on the inside, and you light around the outsides. Now, if you can picture like a one-story schoolhouse, um, especially in a place like Vietnam that has monsoon rains, often those are covered with like metal roofs or solid, some type of solid roofing. Um, and especially metal roofs tend to concentrate heat. So those places get really hot. Um, and in a monsoon, they're really loud. So this conversation we're having right now in a monsoon in one of those houses, we couldn't have. It would be too loud to talk. Um, our roof is quiet. Our roof vents um, because it's 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 semi-porous, right? So uh, it's not airtight. It'll keep the rain out. The rain sheds faster than it penetrates, um, but it lets air through. So if you build the structure properly, you'll get convections and a much healthier environment inside the building, a much quieter uh, uh, building. Um, and and a building that's much more efficient in terms you don't have to use as much electricity because you can do a lot of the lighting through the roof. Um, and all so, this plastic was collected in that town in Ecuador that you're yes, using? Yes. And one of the machines that you described earlier is in that town? Well, um, it is, but it's it's really not in use. And that was one of the things that... So, I mean, we did it as a demonstration to test our concept and to, to see if it works. Um, and it does, but when I did the numbers, um, it was very labor-intensive, the way it was originally set up, and that's what I've been doing here. So in, in the original setup, there was a lot of handwork, and by the time you made enough to thatch a roof, it was kind of a wash between, you know, be a, being a rural worker, growing your crops and selling them, and, you know, basically having this subsistence exist, uh, existence, you would just replace that with with the plastic. Now, yes, you have the benefit of, um, of taking the plastic out of the, the environment, but I wanted to do more. I wanted to do some good engineering where, you know, you make, you make it more efficient so that someone can actually benefit from their labor, um, and build something. Um, and so that's what, that's what we're working on here. Um, Can you describe the different machines that you're working with right now and trying to develop? Because yeah. you said there's multiple different ones. So the first step is collection. So most of these collectors um, make 5 to $10 a day. Um, most of them are women. Um, most of them don't make enough to actually even own a motorbike. Um, so they're pedaling around on a bicycle. Okay, so you're collecting, and they collect cans and cardboard and, and plastic. Um, I'm concentrating right now on just plastic. When you collect a plastic bottle, um, you can try to squish it down, but usually they don't. Usually it's just in these huge bags, and you get to a certain point where it's just so bulky you have to stop and, and get rid of them. Well, that's very time-consuming, um, and you can't really collect all that many before you get to that point where, okay, I need to dump these somewhere. Um, so that's the first step. So I have mobile cutters that I've designed where you take the ribbons of plastic off of the bottles and you put them onto reels and you can carry multiple, multiple times as much because you're not carrying the air anymore. It's like you literally pick up a bottle, you put it on this thing, it shreds it, and then you put it on a reel. As you walk through the town or wherever you're collecting your plastic. Exactly. And it's, it's on a little crank. And the setup that I have in mind is you have three of them. You crank three bottles at a time. Um, you go to the next place and you, you put them on. Um, and so just that alone, if you can increase the efficiency of collection for these people, you can vastly improve their income. Um, so that's step one. Um, so there's two... There's two machines. One is to cut the bottom off, and then the other one is to take the ribbon of plastic. So you're not shredding the bottle. You're taking a, a, a spiral of plastic, a continuous piece, off of that bottle. And then you have some scrap pieces, top and bottom, but those still can be put into a, a more 
um, a more uh, a, a movable um, type of, of, of bag, um, and so you're not moving as much volume. So those are the, the, the bottom cutter and the ribbon cutter are the mobile devices, and those I can produce for probably under $100 once I get it done and be able to give those away to the collectors. And that's why the nonprofit, that's why I want to use the nonprofit. I'm going to be raising money, hopefully from the beverage companies, um, to help me organize these collectors. Step two is that the collectors can then go to um, a community site within their community um, where they can use the next set of machines where they take their ribbons from their reels and put them through another machine that uses uh, ultrasonic welding um, to weld those ribbons into continuous ribbons. And then it goes through another machine that decontours the, the, uh, the ribbons. So if you look at a plastic bottle, you'll see it has all these waves and things in it to add rigidity to the, the product, um, to the container. Um, you want those out. Um, you also want a, a, a base product that's as uniform as possible. So that's what this next machine does. Um, so it flattens and straightens the ribbon. Then we have continuous ribbons on larger reels. Um, so that's step two. Um, then we go to a third set of machines. And actually, there's multiple machines for different products. So then from there, we can create batch where you're taking one continuous ribbon and you're wrapping um, pre-cut or other machine cuts. Um, another ribbon that wraps around, folded out of bias um, over the, the top ribbon and then ultrasonic welding to weld them to the top. So you end up with kind of like a grass skirt um, and that's the thatch. Um, and that gets wound into uh, rolls and you roll it onto the roof and you overlap it and there's your roof. It's also a quick installation mm -hmm. um, once it's done. So that machine I've designed, um, we haven't prototyped yet. So that's, I'm hoping to do that in the next six months. Okay. Um, then there's another machine for product where you take those reels of ribbon and you basically um, work them like a, in a loom. Right? So loom technology is very old, again, talking about the Industrial Revolution, the first one, or the second one. Um, and you start weaving this plastic. Um, you can vary the widths of the plastic. So, you know, you probably would use a, a, a thinner um, width and weave them together into sheets and then do things like cover greenhouses with them um, or make furniture from them um, or anything else you use a sheet product for. Um, so that's another product. Um, that would be another separate machine. Um, and again, that's still in the development stage. Um, that's what, what, it, that's what, what I'm doing here. What about plastic bags? Well, I'll get to that. Okay, actually. perfect. Sorry I do, to interrupt. No, 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 no problem. I, I, I do have an idea for plastic bags and styrofoam and hard plastic and high-density plastics. Um, they're more difficult to recycle. Um, but let me get to that in a minute. Um, the next machine, um, basically, I can create a fencing product, like agricultural fence, like kind of an accordion type of thing that you stretch between posts. Um, same idea, just weaving. Um, and um, there's a lot of use for that in an agricultural uh, country that has lots of chickens and pigs and things like that. Mm. Um, and again, you know, plastic's great because it's strong, it's flexible. Uh, so that's another product. And then um, I'm working with a scientist in Hue um, that is growing mushrooms. Um, so the next product is a lattice of plastic. And we grow the mushroom mycelium, which is like the, the root structure of the mushrooms, over the, uh, the plastic lattice. And, um, and then compress it and heat it into a board. Um, so that we have a building board like this. Um, to build walls with. To build interior walls like this. Um, except for they'll be insulated and they're fire resistant. 
and um, they help to create a better acoustics because they're more like a they're a cellulose foam, uh, almost like a styrofoam, except for they're organic. Um, so that's another product that we're working on. Um, so yeah, those are the those are the major ones for now. Mm. Um, but then you bring up a really good point about plastic bags and, and all of that. So there are larger size bottles that are in common use, um, like the three and five liter, they're square bottles. What I'd like to do with those, there's a thing called Echo Bricks, where, um, and usually they're hand stuffed, so people get bottles like, a, you know, a liter bottle or a liter and a half bottle, um, and they'll collect all of their, um, non-compostable uh, garbage, you know, plastic and wrappers and things like that, and stuff them by hand into these bottles and pack them tight. And then they build walls with them. And it's great because those walls basically insulate better um, and it uses the waste. But it's incredibly labor-intensive. Again, just like the thing in Ecuador where, wow, you know... Yeah, you might be able to build a wall or build a school with them or something like that, but no one's really going to be able to do anything economically viable, really create a career or business out of this because it's just, it's just too much labor. So the, the labor input for the output just doesn't wash economically. Mm. So my question has been, okay, so how do you do it in a way that really makes sense? Um, so what I'd like to do and what I'm planning on doing is then collecting out these other bottles um, and stuffing them with all other types of plastic and then using the same ultrasonic technology, which again has not been really fully developed um, in the way I want to use it yet, into an array that helps that basically vibrates this material into a building block um, so that we take care of the plastic bags, styrofoam, hard plastics, all those things that are hard to recycle, um, and basically just put them into those bottles, pack them pneumatically, and then use sound to vibrate them into a uh, into a, a block mm -hmm. instead of heat. Mm -hmm. um, right now, it's being done with heat, but again, you're know, talking about the long-term energy consumption. Um, I don't know that that's a great solution. Um, it's better than having it in a landfill for sure, but we can do better than that. Mm. Um, and that's so. That's the next step. Talking about the um, the life cycle of plastic, you you're talking about four like life cycles that you're trying to utilize plastic with, right? right. And then the final one being dissolving it with some kind okay. of. So that's right. I haven't mentioned that yet. So you're right, Chapin. The, the the next step is anybody who's been really thinking about it as we've been talking is going to say, okay, great, you make a product out of it. You've kept it out of the waste, but then, you know, after 10, 12 years, 15 years, it biodegrades and it starts breaking. What do you do with it then? Well, then you have another service to collect it. You know where it is. You sold it. So you can then collect it again. Um, and with the same biologist in Hui, I've been working with to identify um, bacteria that will dissolve plastic. Now... Right now, they're very rare um, because plastic is relatively new in the ecosystem. So we've taken soil samples from dump sites um, where there's plastic, and we've been identifying bacteria that are starting to eat the plastic. So the next step is to find which ones are doing the best job, find out what enzymes they're producing to break down the plastic, to melt the plastic, um, and then isolate those. Um, basically, you do that by mapping the genome and, um, and then taking out that um, part and putting it into something that's much easier to reproduce in huge quantities, like E. coli or something like that. Um, the bacteria that's abundant right. and just and then, grows like mad. And then, right, and you create a whole bath of this stuff. Then you take all of the plastic you're collecting that's already been used and you dissolve it. Um, and after it's dissolved, um, 
you can create basically an organic fertilizer from it. Um, takes a few more steps, you know, after you've dissolved it, you we're going to have to analyze what's coming out to make sure that we've got um, a pure output. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often things, there's PBA for plasticizers and, and other things that are often in plastic, um, and you want to make sure that those basically have been digested properly. Mm-hmm. So we're probably a couple years away from that. Um, and figuring it out completely. But that's the idea, is to provide a full life cycle approach to plastic. Yeah, it was really cool. That caught my attention when we were talking the other day about it, and maybe you can describe to the audience your ideal life cycles and the economics behind it and how you see it going from start to finish, economically speaking as well. Because I know that there's aspects that you're going to use utilizing NGO for, and then hopefully some pro- like for-profit entities for these communities. Can I talk to the audience about that and how that hopefully ideally will all flow together? So, yes. So the idea is that the NGO um, creates the machines, does the research, product design, things like that. We do it through an NGO so we can attract um, you know young engineers or even seasoned engineers who want to give something back to the community. Um, lend their expertise, you know, and, and, and get involved in something, not necessarily as a career, but as, you know, a volunteer for, you know, three months, six months, whatever it takes to get a certain project done, right? So maybe they're going to help us design a better cutter or a new process, or they look at the ribbon and say, oh, wouldn't this be a cool product and design that, right? Um, so the NGO is really a good place to, to, to do that. People feel like they can volunteer to something, and you know they're not volunteering their time for some for-profit activity. Then the next step is to take that those ideas and be able to give it to the people who you know have not had much opportunity, um, who end up collecting our waste um, or waste in their communities um, and barely get by. So if you can train them to use these machines. Um, and give them the opportunity, some of them are going to be able to create good businesses. So you give them these machines like a micro loan, um, and they agree when they make profit to pay back. And so you create these hubs in the community for the, from the nonprofit. Nonprofit creates the hubs, trains the micro entrepreneurs to run their own little businesses. The ones that succeed pay back to the nonprofit kind of like a franchise, and then the nonprofit uses those proceeds to multiply and do that as many times around the world as possible mm-hmm. um, until we absorb as much of the plastic as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's obviously many benefits there, um, different economics. Um, there's a book way back in the late 70s called Small is Beautiful, E.F. Schumacher, um, and that's where a lot of this thinking comes from, um, that, you know, capitalism can work in a different way. It doesn't have to consolidate in the hands of the few. You can create situations where um, you've got thousands and thousands of small businesses that are prospering um, within small communities where they're attached and committed to those communities as opposed to you know, a transnational that really has no identity or no, no allegiance to anything. Um, so I'd like to see a different type mm-hmm. of, of capitalism practiced. Yeah, and then so the next step after that, when the plastic has been produced to make something out of, and those right. little micro-entrepreneurs are now selling that to make whatever, or right. selling the end product like a thatched roof. Right, and that's the other thing, right? <coughs> so these products that we're designing aren't just, okay, now we can use waste plastic. In a, in a lot of ways, like I described, they're better. Um, they're really good products. So it's not, I don't want lazy engineering. I don't want lazy solutions, uh, which is what we get too often. I want really thoughtful approaches to what can we do that's good with these things. So our plastic thatch roof has many, many advantages. It's actually better than natural thatch, I think. Um, our plastic fencing, um, our wallboard, 
uh, all of those are actually better. So if you compare our mushroom wallboard to, let's say, gypsum, um, it doesn't grow mold. Um, it doesn't off-gas formaldehyde. Um, it is a very good flame retardant, um, and it insulates far better um, than, than gypsum. Um, so if we can produce this at scale, why use gypsum? Ours is better. Um, so that's what I'm going for. Mm -hmm. I'm going for solutions that are better than what we're trying to replace, and we're using trash at the same time. I love it, man. I'd like to take the audience through the, the final two steps because it sounds like there's so many little micro-businesses that pop up as well. So they produce the plastic products. They go, they live their life out wherever they're... There's a thatch roof, for example. You said 15 years later, then there's another micro-business or maybe done by the same guy who goes and collects the roof. Right. And, and maybe replaces it, right? Yeah, so, does he buy it back or right. replaces it? Or? Well, well, so that's the question, you know, um, and, and, and those are parts of the economics that we still have to work out. Does he buy it back? Maybe, or maybe he leases it. You know, maybe it's a lease agreement where after 15 years, I'll come back and replace your roof and take this from you. And then you bring it to another facility, it gets converted into a, a fertilizer, and the fertilizer gets sold for a final time. Um, so... Some of the details are still yet to be worked out, mm -hmm. um, but but we and when we when you think about the full life cycle of a resource, um, you get into some pretty interesting uh, questions about you know who owns what and for how long, um, and in in the final analysis, you know as human beings as as people who die we don't own anything we borrow it. And if we start thinking about our economics in that way more, that we're actually just borrowing things um, and, and, and exchanging services, um, then I think we get more creative solutions. What is the biggest problem you face right now? Funding. Um, so right now, um, I have to rely on volunteer uh, engineers and, and, and producers. Um, we have some minimal funding. Um, but if I was going to hire professionals even here in Vietnam, um, it's, it'll cost more money than I have. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we created the Fung Yau Underground, um, which is our restaurant. Um, we try to run it as sustainably as possible, um, and we're trying to generate income um, to help to further fund what we're doing. That's um, cool. Yeah, can we talk about the Underground? Because it's a really cool business, or restaurant. Yeah. yeah, well, the underground is, um, we came here to, uh, to Feng Ya um, to talk to the people at the Botanical Garden and to try to help them with income generation um, from the growing number of tourists that are coming to see the caves. And uh, we fell in love with the area. Um, we've been coming up for almost a year and a half and um, said, you know, this place could really use a different kind of restaurant. Um, and I love to cook, but uh, I love to cook. And um, so we decided we'd give it a try. Um, and we had this idea that, okay, the caves are kind of like an underground network. And I was thinking, oh, the London Underground. So, um, so we have a very familiar logo for the, the, the European tourists. Um, so they recognize, you know, the, the underground symbol right away. Um, and the restaurant looks like a tunnel. Um, and, you know, the walls are painted like a tunnel. And, so, and that, that's, you know, that's kind of the theme. Other part of it was sort of the double meaning of the idea of an underground. Uh, underground like an information network or, uh, you know, a secret society that moves things. Um, so we kind of like that too. What kind of food do you serve? Like what's, yeah. We serve a wide variety. Um, my background is Italian, so we have a lot of Italian-inspired dishes. Um, my, my nana would be very happy with my marinara and my meatballs. Um, I, think I, I think I got it. Um, but then we have uh, smoked meats, like smoked chicken and smoked pork. And I use those in some like uh, Alfredo type of preparations. So we have this really great uh, 
penne pasta with uh, alfredo and chicken and roasted mushrooms. Um, and then we have some locally inspired dishes that use uh, some of the local leaves called lilote, kind of like a beetle leaf, and we wrap that around meat and we fry that up and use a local chili lime ginger salt um, that you kind of rub on that. Uh, we have this thing called wild root chicken. Um, where we take our smoked chicken and we use this um, ginger turmeric um, chili uh, sauce with a little bit of uh, cream um, and uh, it has a really great local flavor but it's uh, my own variation. Um, so we've got yeah we've got lots of lots of cool things. We have this banana flower salad kind of like a coleslaw made out of the banana flour um, with a local dressing. It's really nice. So yeah, we've got, a, I think, a nice balance. We have burgers. People love our burgers. Nice, dude. Yeah, the atmosphere is really cool here. Yeah. It's a nice little restaurant for sure. Thanks. But it's also not your only source of income. I know that because you, you are teaching down right. at um, Demang and stuff. Yeah. Um, and how much longer do you think you'll be doing that? Well, I've got two years more on my contract, so okay. at least that. Um, and you teach business. Just I so teach you... business, right. Okay. Teaching business school. Oh, we also make our own ginger beer and kombucha. Okay. So, nice um, little bonus there, healthy bonus. Yeah, well, those are they're great. Um, and it's we use we use things as locally as possible. So again, just like the whole ideas with the with the bottles and things, we want to support the local economy. Um, all of our staff, so I don't do much of the cooking anymore. Um, the staff does all of it. We've trained them. Um, and they're, they're doing a great job. Different kind of cooking than they're used to, um, but, um, but they love it, and I love what they're doing, so it's, it works. We also have a, a bakery, so we bake all of our own bread, uh, all of our desserts, um, all of that's all baked and made here. That's cool. So yeah, it sounds like the plan is then finish your two-year contract and come up here full-time, dedicate yeah. everything to the restaurant well, and the um, other projects. I'll come up, I probably won't come up here full-time. Um, I'm hoping by that point, I'm hoping this year, that I'll have um, a full set of prototypes. And um, I'm hoping to really push the, the plastic project uh, much, much more. And hopefully, and we've just got the manager here, um, the manager will be taking up more of the responsibility for the day-to-day -day operations. and. I'll do spot checks on quality, but um, I, I don't see, I see having to go to many other different places in order to, to get the plastic project really going. What do you mean different places, like different countries or? Well, <clears throat> first of all, different communities here in Vietnam first. Mm -hmm. um, get it well established and running here. And then, yes, ideally different countries. Um, it's a global problem. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, I think my solution applies just as well here in a developing country as it does in a developed country. Um, you know, instead of shipping all our plastic from the U.S. or Europe or wherever um, to another country to have processed, what if we set up the small businesses in the U.S.? Not that we're probably going to use much thatch there, but fencing, wallboard, uh, greenhouses, all of that applies. Um, and the business model, I think, will work. Again, microloans. Um, we've got all sorts of, you know, all sorts of people underemployed in the U.S. Uh, who would love a chance to run their own business. It's the same idea, you know. I mean, what makes what makes it what makes it good here and not in the U.S. Um, if it's a good business model, if there's a demand for the product, it'll work anywhere. So let me give you one example. So again, back back to Asia Pacific. In 2015, which um, is the last data I looked at, about 54 million people lost their houses to natural disasters in one year. It cost over $60 billion in aid to provide them with the shelter and, and things that they needed to, to get through that crisis. Most of those people stay in those houses a minimum of six years, so we're not talking really temporary. My roof will last 12, 15 Right? So there's a good start. And a lot of that aid, like you pointed out in the previous conversation, is plastic bottles. Well, that was my next point, right? 
So yeah, the, the, the first, the first wave of aid that comes in anywhere, people can do without food for a while, but they can't do without water. So bottled water comes in immediately. In a natural disaster, one of the first things that gets knocked out is clean water, right? So you get mudslides and you get flooding and you get all that sort of stuff and all your water is contaminated. So you get bottled water. Well, what do you do with all that plastic? Mostly you throw it out. But what if you came in, you provided them with plastic patch roofs and machines to deal with that plastic. Now you've got not only good housing, high quality housing for people, um, but you also have something for them to do. You can start taking that plastic and converting it into products and start making a living again, right? How do you put people's lives back together? You know, you give them good housing, you give them good food, and you give them a way to, to, to move on. Um, so it's ideal. Um, so we're, we're so close, but we need, we need help um, in order to get the right engineering. I'm not an engineer. I'm a business professor. I have ideas for the machines, but then I need good engineers to actually make them work and make them efficient. So again, back to Ecuador. The ideas worked, but efficiency just wasn't there. I don't have the engineering background. And even the students that I was working with improved things, but weren't professional enough to get it to that next level where you can get a robust machine that under commercial conditions will operate smoothly and continuously and really produce. That's what we need. Mm -hmm. So I need help from experienced engineers who have an idea of what it takes to create a simple machine. And that's the other thing. That's the other problem I've had. So I've worked with some engineers who have great ideas, but they don't get that if you're going to create these machines and use this model, they have to be cheap. You know, they have to be inexpensive. Um, they have to be both inexpensive and efficient. Um, so you've got, you know, several criteria that need to be met um, in order for this to work properly and to distribute this manufacturing. And we're getting close, but we're not there yet. That's right. Yeah, let's talk to the audience right now because I think there's engineers out there. There's people who might be very good at raising funds who have a passion for cleaning up this planet. Let's talk to them. Let's ask for help. I mean, that's what I'm doing. Perfect. That's, that's exactly so if there's any why engineers I'm here. out there listening right now, yeah. how can they get a hold of you? Well, through my, the website. Okay. Um, but even more easily, David at reuseeverything.org. Um, that's my email. It'll come directly to me and I will respond to you within hours or at the very most days. Beautiful. So yeah, we're looking for engineers, people who can crowdfund, do whatever it takes, who are passionate about cleaning up this earth and ridding it, or not ridding it, but reusing the plastic that we have an abundance of and yes. waste. And, and, and we can do it. I mean, there's very few things that are more pressing, um, probably global warming, but Honestly, this solution helps with global warming too, because we're using less energy. Um, we've got this resource, this really quite amazing resource, that instead of using it as a resource, we're allowing it to become a crisis. Um, we're allowing it to basically engulf us instead of support us. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. So a little bit of thinking with the right people, with the right funding, and we could actually tackle this problem. It's really cool, man. If you could just speak to an audience member who has similar aspirations to maybe go out and change the world or move to another country, start a restaurant, or become a professor, what would you say to them? Don't stop. Um, it's really easy to get discouraged. Uh, I've been working at this for almost 10 years. Um, and I've lost friends. I've lost all sorts of people who think I'm just absolutely out of my mind. Um, that I, you know, that, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time? Colleagues basically told me, you know, you know, why are you fucking up your career? Um, you know, you should be doing this. You should be consulting with big companies. You should be, and it's like, fuck that. You know, that is not the issue that is most pressing for humanity right now. Um, I'm, I've been incredibly fortunate. Uh, I haven't been, I've never been wealthy. I wasn't born into wealth, um, but I was born into a very wealthy country. Um, and I had 
amazing opportunities because at that point in our country, we took care of our people. We don't do that anymore. We don't take care of our education. We don't take care of our environment. We don't take care of shit anymore in the U.S. It's one of the reasons I'm not there. Um, and it's about time that people with privilege start taking that privilege response, uh, uh, take it seriously and acknowledge their responsibilities. Um, I live a great life. Um, I don't have a lot of anything, um, but I have the sense that if I can follow through on what I'm doing, that I can actually make a contribution and change something for a lot of people. There's, you know, when, when someone talks about the meaning of life, it's not about how much shit you own. You know, it's not about, you know, how wasted you can get. It's not about how much time you can waste. If you can make a difference in a small way or a large way, then you should, you should go for it. If you've got an inspiration, you should go after it. Um, that's what life's about. That's why we have a brain. Um, that's why we have emotions. And both those things have to work together. Um, you've got to feel good about who you are and what you do at the end of the day. Beautifully said, brother. Thank you for taking time. All right. Awesome, David. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your idea about how to clean up this world's plastic problem, as well as benefit the communities who are drowning in it. I really appreciate you. We really appreciate you. And if there's anybody listening out there who's an engineer or good at crowdfunding, please shoot David an email. As he said, you could reach him at david at reuseeverything.org. Definitely want to check out his website, reuseeverythinginstitute.inc. And if you ever get to Phong Nha, Vietnam, go try some of his food at the underground because it is amazing. Thank you again for listening. Please remember to subscribe. Please remember to rate and comment this episode. If you haven't gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt or tank, you can head on over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up. And please remember, I think you all are so very, very beautiful. I hope David's story inspired one of you to maybe take that first step to go out and try to make the change that you've always wanted to make, whether it's in your own personal life or whether it's tackling one of the big problems that this world is facing. So thank you again for listening. I will see you in next week's episode. Until then, ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that... Maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.